How well do you know your characters in the Bible? I'm talking about the, the little guys. If you've been in the church for some time, you know the big players, Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, so on. But there are hundreds of these minor characters, and they show up just once, twice. How well do you know those guys? And even though they may show up just once or twice, they're still not without significance. They, they play a role in the Bible. For example, in the Old Testament, there's Enoch, a man known for walking with God faithfully, and God took him straight to heaven. There's Melchizedek, known for being a true worshiper of God, a man who blessed Abraham and he foreshadowed the Christ. There's Phineas, he's a son, a grandson of Aaron the high priest, whose zeal for the Lord's house consumed him. Turn to the New Testament, the list goes on. Zechariah, father of John the Baptist, priest in Jerusalem, known for blessing the Messiah. And you have Matthias, a follower of Jesus, and he was chosen by the 11 apostles to replace Judas Iscariot to fill up the number of the 12. Now, the Bible is a big book, so trust me, that list just goes on and on. All these little minor secondary characters. A special note are all the characters that show up during the climax of the Bible, the drama of the cross. Just in the less than 24-hour period between the arrest, the trial, the death of Jesus, all these lesser figures show up, and they have just a few lines. They, they just come and go really quickly, but they still make a splash. They play minor roles, but they're remembered. Just in Mark's gospel alone, we've seen all these little characters come and go in the Passion account. You've got the young man who flees from the garden from Jesus when he's arrested, runs away naked. You have Simon of Cyrene, this random passerby who's made to carry the cross of Jesus. You have the two thieves on the cross, two guys crucified next to Jesus. We never know their names. One of them, though, finds entrance into heaven. You have the Roman centurion who, when Jesus dies, he finally proclaims that this man truly was the Son of God. And then there's, of course, Joseph of Arimathea, this rich member of the Sanhedrin who takes the body of Jesus and buries it in his own tomb. I'm sure all these names, they, they ring a bell to you. You don't think about it every day, but they ring a bell to you. The story is not about them. It's about Jesus and the work he accomplished on that cross. But all these little characters serve to, in one way or another, accentuate Jesus and that work that he was accomplishing. And this is perhaps the most case with a very small figure we meet in our text today. His name is Barabbas. Barabbas. I'm sure the name rings a bell. In the scope of the whole Bible, he's about as small a character as you can get. He doesn't have any lines. We never see him saying anything. He doesn't do anything. He's only known for what's done to him. Namely, he was the prisoner who was released in exchange for Jesus. That's it. And for that non-act, many today still know his name. Yet we find, though, that through Barabbas, God was teaching perhaps the most profound lesson on the work of Christ, more so than maybe anywhere else in Scripture. It's worth seeing, so let's open our Bibles, and would you join me in Mark chapter 15? Mark chapter 15. We started into this chapter last week, finally, it, it's been a long time coming. Everything we've studied in Mark has been leading up to this point. This is the chapter of the cross. This is the reason for which Jesus came, the hour 
for which he came. He was born to die on that cross. He lived to be killed on that cross. Why? What's that all about? Well, we find a vivid picture of what the cross is all about through Barabbas today. Let me bring you back up to speed. Lately, we've seen Jesus arrested in the garden by the Jews in the middle of the night. They take him, they try him, they find him guilty of blasphemy for claiming to be the Christ and the Son of God. Come daybreak Friday morning, they hurriedly sentence Jesus to death and then hand him over to the Romans. The Jews need the Romans to do their dirty work of killing Jesus. And so off to the Romans, Jesus goes. Specifically, he stands before Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea. Pilate normally lived in Caesarea by the coast, but he's in Jerusalem for Passover to keep the peace. And the religious leaders, though, they know Pilate's character. So they quickly formulate some new charges against Jesus when they bring him before Pilate. They had found him guilty of blasphemy, but they know Pilate doesn't care about their petty Jewish laws. So they come up with some new charges and they present before Pilate Jesus as a rebel, an insurrectionist, someone who forbids paying taxes to Caesar, someone who claims to be a king, king of the Jews. To the Romans, these are very serious charges. Pilate had to take them seriously, so he questions Jesus. And this is what we studied last time. Just to review Mark 15, 1 through 5, the, the verses we looked at last week. Let's read them again. Mark 15, 1 says, Early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders and scribes and the whole council immediately held a consultation. And binding Jesus, they led him away and delivered him to Pilate. Pilate questioned him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, It is as you say. The chief priest began to accuse him harshly. Then Pilate questioned him again, saying, Do you not answer? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer. So Pilate was amazed. As we found last time, the other Gospels tell of some extended dialogue between Jesus and Pilate. Pilate was amazed by him. He was no believer, but he was taken aback. He had never seen someone like Jesus before, possessing this majestic peace in the face of death. At the least, Pilate knew Jesus. There's no political threat. He's not the guy these Jews are making him out to be. He's not a rebel. He's not an insurrectionist. He's just a popular teacher whom the Jews, they, they were jealous of him. Still, things were getting out of hand, and Pilate didn't want any part of it. Upon learning that Jesus was from Galilee, he had an idea. He thought he found a way out because the ruler of Galilee happened to be in town, Herod Antipas, the same guy who killed John the Baptist. So, or rather, Pilate sends Jesus off to Herod. Let Herod figure out what to do with him. Herod had been wanting to see Jesus and meet him for quite some time. But when Jesus finally stood before Herod, he said not a single word. He gave him this total silent treatment. Herod had enough. He had Jesus mocked and mistreated, but he found nothing in him worthy of death, so he sent him back to Pilate. It was going to be Pilate, after all, who was going to have to figure out what to do with Jesus. That's where we finished last week, and that's where we pick things up this week in verse 6 in our text for today. Jesus now, he's before Pilate again. He's come back to Pilate. This is the third and the final part to Christ's Roman trial. 
And by the end of our passage today, Pilate's hand will be forced and the death sentence of Jesus will be complete. So now you're sort of up to speed. We're going to make our way through verses 6 through 15 today. Just letting the, the final act of Christ's trial unfold before us and see what we see. So join me again, Mark 6, or rather Mark 15, and we'll start back up in verse 6. Verse 6 continues and says, Now at the feast, he, Pilate, used to release for them any one prisoner whom they requested. There's a reference that Pilate, to what Pilate had, a custom Pilate had at Passover. During the people's goodwill at Passover, he would release for them any prisoner they chose. And this year, Pilate happened to have a very notorious criminal in his possession. We're introduced to him in verse 7. It says the man named Barabbas had been imprisoned with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the insurrection. Here's this guy, Barabbas. He's a criminal. To be more specific, he's called an insurrectionist. Mark doesn't tell us any more details, but apparently there had been an insurrection, an uprising in Jerusalem not too long ago against the Romans. It's not surprising to hear some of these men ended up murdering some Romans, and Barabbas was one of them. Luke makes clear he was a murderer. Matthew calls him a notorious prisoner. His crimes had made him a name for himself. And given what we know of Barabbas, it seems likely that he was part of a group which came to be formally known later as the Zealots. These Zealots were hardcore Jewish nationalists Like the Pharisees, they hated the Romans and Roman rule. But unlike the Pharisees, the Zealots were willing to fight and to kill and to die to make Israel free again. There's a good chance Barabbas was one of them. Even more, among the Zealots, there's a group of men known as the Sicarii. It means dagger men. These were Jewish assassins who targeted Romans and Roman supporters What they would do is that during a feast or a gathering, they would infiltrate the crowd. They would have deadly daggers hidden in their cloaks. And all at one time, all at a moment's notice, they would spring into action. They would assassinate their targets all at once. And then the next moment, their daggers would be concealed and they would just dissipate back into the crowd. Again, it seems Barabbas fits this bill. Most likely he was one of these dagger men. At some gathering, he had killed some Romans or Roman supporters. Only this time, he didn't escape. He was caught, he was arrested, now he's in Pilate's custody. We see where the text is going with this. We're led to believe, you know, is this Barabbas, is he going to be released? Let's find out, verse 8. It says, the crowd went up and began asking him to do as he had been accustomed to do for them. Roman trials were often conducted in public and they gathered quite a crowd Pilate, he's on his judgment seat. Jesus has just returned to him. So now he has to figure out, okay, what are we going to do with Jesus? What to make of him? But as the people remind Pilate of this custom he has to release a prisoner for them, Pilate gets an idea. Pilate knows Jesus is innocent, and he wants to release Jesus. Partly to uphold justice, yeah, but mostly Pilate knows how popular Jesus is. And he doesn't want trouble with all the other Jews that support Jesus. 
killing Jesus, who's guilty of no real charges, just to appease this angry mob, he knows there's a good chance it's only going to invite an angrier mob in the future, a larger mob. Pilate wants to release Jesus to keep the peace. And that's what he tells the Jews. Listen to this parallel from Luke 23, verse 13. At the same time, it says, Pilate summoned the chief priests and the rulers of the people and said to them, You brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion. And behold, having examined him before you, I have found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you have made against him. No, nor has Herod, for he sent him back to us. And behold, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. Pilate and Herod both, they they didn't believe in Jesus, but they knew he was not guilty of these charges. So Pilate intended to have Jesus released. And Pilate thought he had the perfect excuse to release Jesus. That would satisfy everyone. Being Passover, it was his custom on that very day to release for them a prisoner. What a coincidence. So surely, he thought, the people, well, they'll, they'll want Jesus released. He's their guy, right? He's a man of the people, so they'll just release Jesus for me. Pilate knew the religious leaders were trying to manipulate him into doing their dirty work and killing Jesus. But if the people ask for Jesus to be released, there's nothing the ruling Jews could do to stop it. So Pilate thought he found a way to keep the peace, get rid of Jesus, get him out of his hair, and get the religious leaders out of his hair as well. So after addressing the leaders, like we just read, Pilate then turns to the crowd at large, and he says to them this, verse 9 in Mark 15. Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he was aware that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. Pilate knew that these Jews did not hand Jesus over out of loyalty to Rome. I mean, he's not stupid. He knows the Jews hate Rome. He knew they were merely jealous of Jesus. They were envious. The seeming nobody, he's not a trained rabbi, the seeming nobody has become more popular with the people than they ever imagined. And Jesus, because he didn't support them, but rather oppose them, they couldn't have that. He had to go. Pilate read them like a book, and he was right. So he figured, though, that the rest of the people in the crowd, that they they would choose Jesus for this prisoner release program. And Jesus, he was their Christ, their king, was he not? So Pilate even says, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? He says that sarcastically, so as to goad the religious leaders He knew it would infuriate them, but he hoped this appeal would rile up the crowd and come to the defense of Jesus. This plan might have worked, but these religious leaders, they were not going to sit idly by. And so verse 11 says, But the chief priests stirred up the crowd and handed him over because of envy. Or rather, excuse me, I, I jumped into verse 10. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to ask him, to release Barabbas for them instead. There's actually a little break in the action here that played right into the hands of the priests and the elders. According to Matthew, right after Pilate 
asked the crowd if they wanted him to release Jesus, Pilate was interrupted. And he had to take a little time out. And that time out gave the priests and the elders all the time they needed to go out into the crowd and to sway the crowd, to win them over. What was the nature of Pilate's interruption? Well, Matthew tells us it was an urgent message from his wife. You may remember this. I'll read for you Matthew 27, 19. It says, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message saying, have nothing to do with that righteous man. For last night, I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. Here's another little very secondary character. Nothing more is said. But his wife, Pilate's wife, was so disturbed by this auspicious dream that she had to interrupt her husband's trial over it. She says, Watch, just don't, don't do anything. I'll have nothing to do with that righteous man. We'll see how that comes into play later. But at the least, that interruption and gave the Jewish leaders the time they needed to, to talk to the crowd, to convince the crowd. And that's what they did. Literally, it says they shook up the crowd. It may have been that many in the crowd would have asked for Jesus to be released. But the religious leaders used their clout and their influence to see otherwise. What did they say to convince the crowd? We're not told exactly, but I'm sure it went something like this. You know, if Jesus, if this guy's really your Messiah, would he be imprisoned by the Romans? That would never happen. That, that type of logic was very compelling to the Jews. And the Messiah... In their mind, he was supposed to overthrow the Romans, not be their helpless prisoner. I'm going to be killed by the Romans. That's not possible. That was a stumbling block to the Jews. If Jesus had any supporters in the crowd, that's probably all they had to say. Would your Messiah really ever be beaten and bloodied by the Romans? That, That could never be. And furthermore, Barabbas, he may have been seen as a local hero among the people. I mean, the Romans hated him, but the Jews, they probably liked him. I mean, after all, Barabbas, he's the guy who actually did something about the Roman tyranny. He actually went to arms to fight the Romans. In fact, wasn't Barabbas more like the Messiah they wanted? A guy willing to take up the sword to overthrow Rome? Not this Jesus who wouldn't lift a finger to oppose Rome. This supposed king who rode into town on a donkey? That's not, that can't be our Messiah, our conquering king. Either way, it didn't take much for the Jews, the the leaders, to to turn that crowd from Jesus to Barabbas. And furthermore, according to Matthew, the chief priests and the elders, they persuaded the crowd not only to ask for Barabbas' release, but also to demand that Jesus be crucified. Surely their logic went, hey, Jesus, he's not the Messiah, therefore he's a blasphemer, therefore, according to our law, he must die. So we need to tell Pilate, this can't stand. Whatever they said, it worked. That's the bottom line. Look at verse 12. Answering again, Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? And they shouted back, Crucify him. This must have been a shock to Pilate. First, the crowd shouts, that they want Barabbas. That's the first thing. They say, away with this man about Jesus. Give us Barabbas. That's the first chorus. Pilate thought he had this one in the bag. 
Little did he know that when he was off talking to his wife, the priests had canvassed the crowd and, and successfully swayed them. Now they, they first cry out with one voice for Barabbas. So Pilate says, okay, well, what should I do with Jesus, whom you call the king of the Jews? Like, okay, you want Barabbas, but what about Jesus? What should I do with Jesus? And again, with one voice, they're ready with their response. They say, crucify him. It's a chant. Look at the other gospels. They're just chanting, crucify him over and over again. Pilate doesn't want to do this. He doesn't. He knows Jesus is an innocent man, and he's a, more importantly, he's a popular man. Like I said before, killing Jesus to appease this angry crowd, it just might invite a larger, angrier crowd of Jews in the future. Pilate's in a catch-22. And so in frustration, he responds, like verse 14 says, Why? What evil has he done? At this point, let me bring in some of the other Gospels, paint the fuller picture here, because they all have these great parallels with one another. The parallel in Luke gives us Pilate's fuller statement here, Luke 23, 22. Pilate says, Why? What evil has this man done? I have found in him no guilt, demanding death. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. That was Pilate's new plan. The people wanted Barabbas freed and Jesus dead. But Barabbas, he's actually deserving of death. Jesus is not. He knows they're handing Jesus over because of envy. And this crowd was being played. So Pilate's new plan was to scourge Jesus, rough him up, so that the crowd would be moved to compassion on him and they would choose to release him out of pity. They would see that Jesus, he took his stripes for whatever he had done, and then they would choose for him to be released instead of the truly guilty Barabbas, whom Pilate definitely did not want to release. So at this point, that's what Pilate does. According to John, at this point, Pilate then takes Jesus into the praetorium and roughs him up. The soldiers, the Roman soldiers there, they beat him up, they, they bloody him up. Jesus, he's already been beaten once by the Sanhedrin in the middle of the night during that Jewish trial. And a and little, little time later, he's going to be scourged even more violently. But here again, he is beaten and bloodied by the Roman soldiers inside the praetorium. This is a lesser beating. It's just designed to, to rough him up. And after this, Pilate then takes Jesus back to the crowd. He parades him back in front of the crowd, and he says to them this, Behold, I am bringing him out to you, so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. At this point, it would have been a pathetic sight. Jesus would have been thoroughly beaten and bloodied. He'd be swollen, bruised. He's also being mocked as a king. But Pilate's design in this was to show Jesus, he's no dangerous criminal like the Jews were making him out to be. For anything that he said, look, he's been sufficiently punished. He's, he's had enough, right? He's been roughed up. So Pilate's hope was that at this point, the Jews would just take pity on Jesus, ask for him to be released, and not Barabbas. But once again, it did not work. Reading from John now, John 19, verse 6 says, But when the chief priests and the officers saw him after he had been beaten, they cried out saying, Crucify! Crucify! The leaders weren't buying it. 
They, they didn't buy into Pilate's show, his little plan to make them pity Jesus. They still wanted Jesus dead. And after this, the crowd joined in as well. Like Mark 15, 14 says, but they shouted all the more, crucify him. It didn't change them. Their minds were made up. Blood was in the water. And the crowd was already stirred up into a feeding frenzy. Pilate was very frustrated by now. I mean, he should be the one calling the shots, not this crowd. The crowd is getting away from him. So according to John 19, verse 6, Pilate, he says to the crowd, just take him yourself. You take him yourself and you crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Pilate, he's done. He's like, I'm done with Jesus. You want him so bad, you kill him yourself. He wanted to know more of this, but the Jews, they're just not letting Pilate get out of this. So the next verse in John 19 says, The Jews answered him, saying, We have a law, and by that law he ought to die, because he made himself out to be the Son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. And he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. That's a pretty interesting turn of events. The Jews, they never said to Pilate that Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. Remember, they changed the charges. So they never said that until now. Remember, the Romans, they were very superstitious. And the whole idea of a divine man was very believable to them. Caesar claimed to be a divine man. Pilate, he's already been awestruck by Jesus. His wife had this auspicious dream about him. Now Pilate hears that Jesus claimed to be the son of God, a divine man, and he's getting scared. Get this, Pilate senses there might be something to this. He's getting nervous. Who who is this Jesus? He's never seen someone like this before. So he pulls Jesus in one more time to question him, but this time Jesus says nothing. John 19 continues in verse 9. But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given given to you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Verse 12 says, as a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him. Look, do you realize Pilate, he's getting scared. He has some worldly fear of Jesus. He knows Jesus is no ordinary man. He carried himself like no ordinary man. He had perfect peace like no ordinary man. His wife had this dream about him. And remember, Romans, they believed dreams were very auspicious. That's how the gods communicated, through dreams. Now, here this man is claiming to be the son of God. This is all starting to get to Pilate. So he just he, he's going to take his wife's advice. Like He wants to release him. Have nothing more to do with that righteous man. Just get him out. Pilate is not a believer. Don't be confused. But he has concerns. But we know. We know Pilate is not going to find a way out of this one the crowds and the religious leaders at this point they play their ultimate trump card 
they see that Pilate is wavering. They know Pilate wants to release Jesus, but they drop their bombshell. They say, the Jews cried out, this is John 19. They say, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. And everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. And that was it. And Pilate knew that was it. It's over. Pilate was already on thin ice with Rome due to a series of missteps with the Jews, provocations with the Jews. In fact, the Jews, they had already successfully complained to Tiberius Caesar, the emperor, about Pilate, and they already got Pilate in trouble. So he cannot afford another riot. He can't afford another complaint to Caesar against him, especially the one claiming he's no friend of Caesar. Pilate knows that's it. That's it right there. What they said was true. Of course, Pilate knows and we know. It's so ironic because these Jews, they hate Rome. They hate Caesar. They're no friend of Caesar, the Jews. But Pilate is. And if word gets out that he released a man who claimed to be a king, he would seal his own doom. He couldn't handle that. They had his number. One last time, Pilate said to the Jews, Behold your king. Isn't this your king? Still, gang, Jesus released, but it was no use. John 19:15. Just listen to this. So they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. And with that statement, the trial of Jesus was over. With that statement, the final nails were buried into the coffin of Jesus. I mean, what a statement. Think about that statement by no less than the chief priests. These are the leaders of Israel religiously. We have no king but Caesar. That was not true. They hated Caesar. Here's a man they detested, this vile, pagan, Gentile king. Caesar himself, who claimed to be a god, they hated Caesar. Yet they would rather take him as their king over this Jesus. The fact that they would stoop to this level shows you that for these Jews, their hearts had already turned to granite. It's over. They were done. Pilate was done. Jesus was done. Matthew tells us at this point, a riot was starting to break out. The crowd was calling for blood. So Pilate, he walks out, takes his hands, washes them in water. He says, I am innocent of this man's blood. The blood of Jesus, he's like, it's not on my hands, it's on you. The people respond, the crowd, you remember this? They say, his blood shall be on us and our children. And sadly, their words became true. What what a thorough level of rejection. They were happy to call on their own heads the blood of Jesus, not realizing it's the blood of Jesus. That's the only thing that could save them. Well, his rejection was complete. The trial is over. And we can finish now back in Mark, which takes us to the end. Mark 9, verse 15. Back in verse 15. It says, Wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them. And after having Jesus scourged, again, he handed him over to be crucified. With this, the trial of Jesus was over. 
He's been condemned to death by the Jews, the religious leaders of Israel. That sentence of death has now been ratified by the Romans. And so Jesus will die. Not the Jewish way, not via stoning, but the Roman way, via crucifixion. But as we read this, it's sad, it's tragic, it's heartbreaking. But we know this was God's plan. Christ came to die the Roman way. He had to be forsaken by the Jews, yet killed by the Romans. And that is to come. But along these lines, knowing this this still is all God's plan, as we see the events and the characters leading up to the actual death of Jesus, everything here bears significance. The four gospel writers, they don't tell us everything there is to know about the death of Jesus, but what they do record under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it's there for a reason. Everything we study here it has some significance. It's meant to teach us something about Christ, something about salvation, about God, about the world, about ourselves. And that's no different than with these verses today, capturing the end of Christ's trial. And specifically now, I want to just draw on a few lessons from the secondary characters. That their choices, their actions have an impact that extends far beyond this text to our own day. And what we find is that through God's design, all these little secondary characters in the passage, they leave behind amazing pictures of what it still looks like for how the world relates to Christ. And nothing's changed. This is how the world relates to Christ. These different ways they respond, that's how the world today still responds to Jesus. With that in mind, just by way of reflection, let me let me give you two pictures of how the world relates to Christ. Just thinking back, this is the end of his trial. All these characters show up here at the end. And they really leave behind for us pictures, two in particular, of how the world relates to Christ. And they still hold true today, all throughout history. This is still how the world relates to Christ. We find, number one, a picture of Christ's rejection by the world. A picture of Christ's rejection by the world, which still happens today. This picture comes from Pilate and the religious leaders and the crowd. Through their actions, we get a picture of why the world rejects Jesus. They don't want Jesus in their world. They want him gone. They say, away with this man. Why? Well, they reject Jesus because they don't want to lose something else. They all have something to lose. And if you allow Jesus to exist in your world, he threatens what you hold precious. Their power, their prestige, their position, their popularity, so on. They don't want to lose their hold on life. Jesus threatens what they hold precious. Especially the one who claims to be the Christ, the Son of God, Lord over all. His mere existence threatens them and what they hold precious. If Christ is true, then to him belongs all the power and the glory, not to them. If this is true, then he must be supreme in your life and nothing else. But the world doesn't want a Lord. They want to hold on to their own power and glory, and so away with him. They have to say, away with him. He threatens our power, our glory, away with him. We see this in the religious leaders. We just saw that. Jesus was a direct threat to their power. They ruled Israel. 
They were in charge of the temple operation. They were the lords of the people. And that's it. The only Messiah they wanted was one who would further them up the ladder, not a Messiah who would be lord over them. In addition, greed, hypocrisy, evil run rampant in their hearts. They're spiritually dead. They don't serve God. Jesus confronted them on their inner deadness. Of all people, they the most needed to die to self and repent and turn to God. But they were not willing, and more than not willing, just the thought that they weren't saved, the thought that they weren't in the right, the thought that they were wrong, that thought alone infuriated them, made their blood boil. But like scripture says, when the light shines on the darkness, the response is pure hatred. Like Jesus said, everyone who does evil hates the light. Still today, right? The religious leaders represent the willful rejection of the truth and righteousness of God by the world. They refuse to come to the light for fear that their evil deeds will be exposed. John 3. And so the light has to be put out, what the world still does today. Same thing goes for the crowd. The crowd represents the masses of humanity who don't think for themselves. They just go along with whatever those in power over them say. The crowd was just a pawn in the hands of the religious leaders used to further their purpose. Yet the people went along with it. They stuck to the party line like dumb, blind sheep. But they too had something to lose. They didn't want to be social outcasts. If you went against the will of the religious leaders, they would kick you out of the synagogue. They would excommunicate you. You'd be a social outcast. You'd be ridiculed. Who wants that? Jesus isn't worth that. After all, the nail that sticks out gets hammered down. So who wants to stand against the crowd for Jesus? And so we find the crowd, in a way, represents all those in the world who reject Jesus out of a desire for acceptance by the world. The world has turned on Jesus. Christ and Christians are ridiculed in the public square. And they don't want to enter into that. They want to stay where it's safe, stay in the crowd, that secular crowd. They don't want to step out for Jesus. So they go along with putting out the light. And then you have Pilate. And don't think Pilate is off the hook. It's true. Pilate didn't want to kill Jesus. That's true. Four times on four separate occasions, he said to the people, I find no guilt in him. He's done nothing worthy of death. Four different times. Yet, verse 15, like we read, he still handed Jesus over to be crucified. That's evil. I mean, Pilate's, in many ways, Pilate is worse. His job is to uphold justice. But he willingly, knowingly condemned an innocent man to death. That's wicked. That's, in many ways, worse. And why did he do it? Verse 15 says, wishing to satisfy the crowd. That's it. Of course, we know that circles back to him. You could write, you could read in there, wishing to keep his job, wishing to maintain his power, his prestige, his position as governor of Judea. It's about himself. Pilate tried washing his hands to get the blood of Jesus off his hands, but it's just not that easy. It doesn't work like that. And Pilate represents, in a way, many today, 
People who are familiar with Jesus, maybe even intrigued by Jesus. Hey, maybe maybe he is Lord. Maybe there's something in, maybe there is something to this Jesus guy. But the pressure of the crowd is too much for them. Even though they believe Jesus might be right, they won't risk their neck for him. There's too much to lose at the hands of the crowd. So they too, wishing to satisfy the crowd, end up denying Jesus. This rejection of Christ, it's still played out today the same way. I mean, this was all real. This was historical. This happened. But what a paradigm. We find the same thing happening today all over the place. Nothing's changed. Take, for example, the leaders of this world, the scientists, the the philosophers, the professors, the politicians, the rich, the celebrities. And together, they loudly voice their opposition to Christ. They ridicule God and his ways. They boast of their hatred of the light. This, in turn, gives boldness to the crowd, the masses of people who follow along like blind sheep. They don't think for themselves. They don't study scripture for themselves to see if it's true or not. They just swallow down what society tells them. This, in turn, puts pressure on the few who are intrigued by Christ, maybe even the young professing believer in Jesus. But as the heat gets turned up by the crowd, as as the pressure of society intensifies, a choice must be made. Either you're going to stand with the crowd in safety against the light, or you're going to stand against the crowd in scorn just for the sake of this Jesus guy. And sadly, all too many like Pilate, they back down, they wish to satisfy the crowd. They they fear the crowd, they fear the world more than they fear God and deny Christ. But from this picture, uh, don't we see more clearly what Jesus said? He said, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. This is exactly what he was talking about. Pilate, the leaders, the crowd, they all had something precious, something they didn't want to lose that Jesus threatened. And it all boils down to their life, their own life, living for self. And Jesus threatened what they held dear in their life and their heart. And so they counted their own lives more precious than Jesus. And so, of course, they were willing to sacrifice Jesus on the altar of self, where we have to kill him, get rid of him, so we can keep living for ourselves, the way we want to live. In the end, though, they will lose just that. They will lose their power, their prestige. They all did. And ultimately, they will lose their life eternally for rejecting him. But those who count Jesus as more precious than anything else, those who are willing to sacrifice all else to gain him, those who are even willing to endure the scorn of the world, For his sake, they will gain their lives back, even eternal life. So what about you? What do you fear losing if you follow Christ? What do you have at stake to lose to follow Christ? What do you fear? You have to ask yourself, do you fear God more? Do you fear God more than what you have to lose by following Jesus? I hope you do. Only in Christ can you be saved. This leads to number two. Lastly, a picture of Christ's salvation of the world. Switching gears a bit, first we we see from the the antagonist a picture of Christ's rejection by the world. 
But I want to include here, here at the end, a, a picture of Christ's salvation of the world. This needs to be seen as well. And this picture comes to us from one figure, from this little figure named Barabbas. You may not have thought about it before, but this little character Barabbas, he gives us maybe the greatest picture of salvation in all of Scripture. Now, I'm not joking. Abraham nearly sacrificing his son Isaac, that's a, a huge picture of salvation. Jesus cleansing the leper, freeing the demoniac, those are profound pictures of salvation. But Barabbas, this might be on top. He's a picture of the redeemed. I'm not saying he was redeemed himself and he became a Christian. We just don't know. Maybe someday he did. We just don't know that. But, but the circumstances of his release, they have this added layer that serves as a perfect picture of what Jesus came to do for his lost sheep. It's all about trading places. Who was Barabbas? He was a guilty criminal, a thief, a murderer. He was lawless, violent, unrighteous. Therefore, he stood condemned under a just sentence of death. But you have to realize, spiritually speaking, that's us. That's our description. We are spiritually condemned justly under a sentence of death. Why? Because we're all lawless before God. All sin is lawlessness. And we're guilty. We've broken God's laws. We've pursued our own way. We're rebels. We're insurrectionists against God's rule and authority in our lives. And we've done wrong. And so all of us, like Barabbas, we stand guilty before a holy God. We've already been sentenced. It's over. It's just a matter of time before we will pay the penalty with our lives eternally for our sin. What can we do about this? Nothing. Like Barabbas, we're chained. We can't escape. You can't plead your case. You're already guilty. It's over. You can't free yourself. We're just utterly doomed before God. But in this amazing twist of fate, even though we stand condemned, and even though there's nothing we can do about it, we can't free ourselves, but we can be free. How? Well, by trading places with Jesus. Notice, Jesus becomes Barabbas' substitute sacrifice, literally. I mean, Barabbas, he was literally guilty of insurrection against Rome. Jesus was not. But still, in the end, Jesus assumed the very guilt of Barabbas. He died for that reason in their eyes. He was condemned for the very thing that made Barabbas guilty, even though Jesus was totally without sin. Jesus took Barabbas' guilt on himself, in their eyes, and then he paid Barabbas' penalty, the death penalty. He died in his place. Understand this. That morning, the Romans, they had three crosses already prepared. You ever think about that? They were going to kill three people that morning one way or another. There was always going to be three crosses on Calvary that morning. The two crosses were for the robbers, And I would bet those guys were with Barabbas. But that third cross, that was meant for Barabbas. You ever think about that? That was Barabbas' cross. He was supposed to die there that morning. But God repurposed it. He traded it. The righteous one 
given for the lawless one. The life giver given for the life taker. The man of love given for the man of hate. And by the way, the name Barabbas, his name means son of his father. Literally, that's the name Barabbas means. Bar Abba, Abba Father, son of his father. And so what a picture. You have Jesus, the son of God the father, given over for Barabbas, son of his father. Picture of God the son, given over for man, mankind. In a symbolic way, listen carefully, in a symbolic way, you can, you can almost picture that third cross being for you. You should have died there that morning. You and I, we were supposed to hang there condemned between those two criminals. That, that's, that should have been our fate. That's the penalty we all deserve because of our lawlessness before the righteous God. But Jesus came to, to take that, to pay that penalty. Take your guilt, pay the penalty to die in your place. And in return, though, he dies. What do you get? You just go free. Your chains fell off. My heart was free, as the song goes. You're let go. You have no more guilt, no more penalty. You're totally free to live your life, new life in Christ, eternal life. Barabbas, he received his freedom that morning. He walked away. He probably thought he was hot stuff. He probably thought the people, they love me so much. Look what they did for me. He's totally oblivious. He didn't do anything. He merely received grace. And that's another picture of our salvation. Barabbas did nothing to earn this. He just received, in his eyes, a gift, free gift of life. The same goes for us. The salvation in Jesus, it's a free gift of God. What did Barabbas do to earn release? Nothing. To deserve release? Definitely nothing. But it was given to him nonetheless in the providence of God. And this is the grace of God and salvation. And that offer, that free gift, still stands. It's still there all these years later. That you can still be saved in Christ. You can be set free in Christ. That the picture of salvation can become a reality in your life today. The offer is made to all to, in a way, trade places with Jesus. He offers to take your penalty, to pay your guilt, which he accomplished on the cross, and to give you his reward in return, his, his life, eternal life. Of course, to gain Jesus and his life, if you're going to trade places with him, that means you must accept his scorn. Trading places with him means also accepting the suffering he endured by the crowd. He bore your cross. In a way, you're going to have to bear some of his cross in the form of rejection by the world, suffering, persecution. But are you still willing? Is that price worth it to you? It boils down to how much do you value Christ? But I pray you behold his majesty, you see him for who he is, and you believe he is worth it. Now just to finish, you know the Apostle Peter, less than two months after this happened, less than two months later, the Apostle Peter, in the same spot, pretty close to the temple, he preaches a sermon to pretty much the same people, the same crowd, more or less the same people who killed Jesus. He preaches a sermon to them in Acts 3. And he starts off by convicting them. He says this 
to these people. He says, you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And he says, you put to death the prince of life. Peter was convicting the crowd. Basically, you, you're murderers. You've become like Barabbas. You killed the prince of life. But in a sense, isn't that us too? None of us are without guilt for the death of Jesus. You probably heard it said, our sins nailed him there. And they did. Our sins nailed him to that cross. And in a way, we've become like Barabbas. Truly, we're, we're murderers in a sense. The blood of Jesus on our hands because of our sin. Yet Peter still preached the offer of salvation to that crowd. The same crowd that killed Jesus. So what does that tell you? If God's grace is great enough to cover that sin, the sin of killing Jesus, I'm pretty sure God's grace is big enough to cover your sin too. Because many in that crowd were saved. And so like Peter preached, Acts 3.19, he said, Therefore to them, therefore repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. That offer still stands. That message still stands. That the trading places of Christ, it still stands. Repent, return, turn to him. He'll take your guilt, your shame, your, your broken life, and he'll free you in a way you can't imagine in him do that today and for the rest for those who have made that exchange already let's be reminded and refreshed in our our zeal our heart for the lord he he did this for us he came condemned to stand in our place and what do we get just go free just go free but we know we're bound now we're bound to him to live this new life he's given us new life it's new life in him let's then live this life in him let's Let's press on in our walk, our race, our upward call for the sake of Christ, who lived, who died for us, and gave us his life. Let's live for him. Let's pray. Our gracious God, you are the God of all grace and mercy. You look down upon mankind, lost, condemned in sin, all of us, rebels, insurrectionists against your rule and authority, hating the light, loving the darkness. Yet in your grace and mercy, you sent Christ, the God-man, the divine man, the Son of God. And he knowingly and willingly endured all this. All this we've read this morning and so much more that we can't even fathom. Utter rejection, despised, forsaken by men, totally cast off. Yet he did so for us, to trade places with us. That was our death. He took all of our deaths and paid that penalty. And rising to new life, he gives us new life ourselves. If we would behold him, if we would turn to him, if we would, if we would live for him, offer up our very lives for him, counting him more precious than the whole world, we would receive our lives back to us. Thank you for this great exchange. We confess we did nothing. We, we've done nothing to earn or deserve this. It's just all by you, the God of grace and mercy. So we, we proclaim you now. We praise you. We thank you. May we reflect your grace and mercy in our lives. And may we live truly as free men and women, children of God in Christ, living this new life that you've given to us for your sake, for your glory. This is all from you and for you, Lord. To you be the glory for Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.